Okay, so I'm glad you're here. And uh, I, want to, um, I want to talk about a, a, a number of things. And um, one of them just... I want to zero in a little bit on uh, one of the 12 tribes that we don't discuss as much, and, and the figure himself, Binyamin, uh, in English, Benjamin. And I, I, I've been researching him a little bit, and um, I found out uh, lots of, I think, interesting things, including, including that I, I believe, I would like to suggest, uh, that he was the first Jew with dreadlocks. And um, I'm basing this actually on a medrash, uh, that says that after, um, after Yosef was sold, it says he didn't wash or comb his hair. Now, that's how you make dreadlocks. You know? So that means he had dreadlocks. I, I will posit that. So, so that makes Benjamin the first documented Jew with dreadlocks. Um, now, I might be going out on a limb there, but, but that, does, that does seem to track, so I'll hold on to that until someone can, can tell me otherwise. Um, you know, he, uh, he's such an awesome personality. It says, I saw in the name of the Zohar that, that while Yosef was missing, and of course, Yosef, you know, is, is just uh, it's the highest, right? That he took, his, he took his place, spiritually speaking. And I don't know what that means exactly, but, but, um, and not only that, you know how much he loved his brother? Yosef, it says, was supposed to also have 12 sons, just like Yaakov had 12 sons. You know, there, there are a lot of parallels between Yosef and, and, and Yaakov, tons, actually. And it says Yosef was supposed to have 12 sons, but he only had two sons. And it says that, the, that, that Benjamin had 10 sons. And he named them all after Yosef. Different variations of, um, and all, all variations of how much he missed him and how much he was longing for him. You know? And uh, it's, um, that's, that's touching, you know? Can you imagine having ten sons and naming them all after your brother? Different versions of missing him? So, but it goes further than that says, Benjamin was actually one of the four people, this is in Gomorrah Shabbos, 55b, says that Benjamin was actually one of the four people in the world that only died because of the Nachash, meaning that uh, because death had entered the world when, um, when, when uh, Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, uh, there are four people who died, but otherwise these four people would have never have died because they had there was no chet in them. There was no, there was no wrong in them. They, had, they, they lived perfect lives, essentially. And Benjamin is one of the four. Interestingly, the, the other three, if you want to know, are um, the father of Moshe, Amram, the father of David HaMelech, um, Yishai, and Kilav ben David, the son, one of the sons of, of King David. And... Um, you know, so, so of those four, two of them are fathers of great people, uh, of David and Moshe. And actually, there, there are many, many comparisons between the greatness of King David and the greatness of, of Moses, of Moshe Rabbeinu. And in fact, the Orachachayim says that the soul of Mashiach, the Neshama of the Mashiach, is going to be comprised of Moshe and David. 
So it's interestingly that their fathers are two of the four people that were completely blameless. Completely blameless. And, um, and so I guess a recipe for holy children would be, don't do anything wrong. <laughs> be perfect. No, I mean, I'm exaggerating. But, but there does seem to be a correlation between, between one's level and, and, and the children one produces. And, you know, it says, interestingly, so if you say to yourself, oh, I've already messed that up, what's going to be with my offspring, you know? But it's not true. It's not true. Because there's an amazing Gomorrah that says um, that if someone marries someone under the condition that they're a tzaddik, right? And then after the marriage already takes place, is it still a valid Chuppah, if a condition, in other words, is it still a, according to Torah, a contractually legal wedding that's taken place if the woman married the man under the condition that he was a complete tzaddik, a completely righteous person? And the answer is yes, because a moment before they actually uh, transacted the, 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 the marriage arrangement, he could have done tshuva. And so, because, because there's even the possibility that he may have done tshuva, and there you also see the power of tshuva, that tshuva can absolutely wipe a person's slate completely clean. You know, it's funny, um, when I got married to my wife, she really wanted to do it before Rosh Hashanah. She wanted to get married before Rosh Hashanah. And her thinking was, because it's known that when you get married, all of your sins are forgiven. So she figured, since when you, on Rosh Hashanah, your year is being determined, if you get married before Rosh Hashanah, you're, 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 you're completely wiped clean, so you have to have a good year, right? Because you're like a total tzaddik in the eyes of heaven. It was actually a good year, now that I think back on it. It may have worked. That may be actually quite a brilliant advice. You know, I, 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 when we first got married, I went to this electronics store. And uh, it's since closed, but it was like kind of like a good guy's type place. Do you remember Adres? Does that, do you remember Adres? Yeah. So that was like an early kind of like uh, electronics superstore before they really got uh, crazy. Anyway, I remember we were, we were trying to buy a phone or something like this, and there was a, a man from India uh, behind the counter. And, uh, and my wife was sort of asking various, very sort of incisive questions about the warranty. <laughs> and, you know, my mind just doesn't go to those places. I can't really <laughs> grasp any of those things. But, but she was asking questions that he was, like, amazed by. And then, with great wonder, he turned to me and said, it's good to be married to a genius. <laughs> so, to this day, 20 years later, that we, we often say that to each other, you know, or I say it to her anyway. Um, so, um, so, Benjamin, Benjamin was, was awesome. And uh, so, you see all these, these, uh, these beautiful things about him. And, um, but I, I, I want to actually zero in on something. And I don't actually really know what to make of this. I, I'm going to sort of posit something after, after the fact. But, but let me just sort of build something 
And um, and then we kind of we can take a few steps back and kind of look at what it is exactly. Try to figure out what we've just done. Um, one of the things that I noticed is that uh, Benjamin is 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 born uh, in 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 this week's parsha in in Parshas Vayishlach, and there are twelve tribes, and he's he's. He's the only one who's born in this week's Parsha. All the other 11 are born in the previous week's Parsha. So I'm going to just try to just picture, I'm building a structure right now, so just try to make different uh, kind of boxes in your brain right now. So in one Parsha, you have 11 tribes, and in the following Parsha, you have one tribe. That's Binyamin. And it hit me that that's actually very reminiscent of another... Um, uh, occurrence like that in the Torah, where in Parsha's Truma, you have all the Kalim of the Beis HaMikdash, and then in Parsha's Tetzaveh, which is the next week's Parsha, you have one uh, Kli, one vessel of the Beis HaMikdash, of the Holy Temple, that's not included with the rest. And the, the commentators point out, how come this wasn't included with the rest? And that's the golden uh, incense altar, which was in the area of the Holy of Holies. Okay? And so I thought, wow, you have like all, in both instances, you have everything except one, which is in the following week's Parsha. So in this case, that one would be Benjamin and the golden incense altar. So I thought, okay. Then I thought, well, how far does that parallel go? Like maybe, is it possible that they both occur in the same, like, part of the book that they're in? And I thought, well, that's kind of far-fetched, but let's check it out anyway. So, I counted up, because we're going to look at the relationship between uh, Vayetze and Vayishlach, right? The 11 tribes versus the one tribe. So, I counted it up. Vayetze is the seventh Parsha in the book of uh, Breshis, Genesis. And Vayishlach is the eighth Parsha, so seven and eight. And then I looked it up for the, you know, the, the, the kalim, the, the vessels for the Holy Temple. That's in the book of Shmos, Exodus. And Truma is the seventh Parsha. And, and Tetzavah is the eighth Parsha. So not only is it all but one and then one, but in both instances they were the seventh Parsha of the week, followed by the eighth Parsha of the week. So that really kind of concretizes this parallel between Benjamin and the incense altar. And both of them occurring in this, this period of the, the eighth, right? So everybody knows in Torah, eight is a very important number. It means, as we say, Lamala Minateva, above the natural order of things. Since seven stands for this world, the world was created in seven days, and there are all sorts of sevens. But anyway, so, so that puts Binyamin and the incense altar both at the level of eight, which is, which is, very, which is very striking. So now let's like revisit these two things, looking at how they're both actually above nature, and see some other comparisons also. So one of the striking things is that we said that Benjamin was never going to die. Right? That is completely above nature. It's completely above nature. And the only reason why he did die was because death entered into the world. Now, 
there's something interesting about the incense altar, or incense and death, which is in Parshish Karach, there's a plague that breaks out, and Moshe instructs Aaron, the high priest, right, the Kayin Gadol, instructs him to run right to the edge of where the people are dying with his incense pan, and he stands right on the border between people who are dying and where people aren't dying, and he stops the plague. He stops death. And uh, Rashi brings down from, uh, from the Gomorrah an amazing medrash, actually, which is, where did Moshe learn that incense stops death? And the answer is, is because when he went up to receive the Torah and Shemayim in heaven, all the angels gave him different gifts. And the angel of death, the Malach HaMavis, gave him the secret of stopping, you know, death through plague, basically, which was incense. So, another interesting parallel between Binyamin and this, this golden incense altar is that every part of Israel was divided up among the different tribes. And the tribe that Binyamin got was... I mean, the area of Israel that Binyamin got was the area of the Holy of Holies and, and where, where, where the incense altar was, actually. That was his inheritance. That's, where, that's what he got. Not only that, but you see how incense itself is Lamala Minateva, above nature. And because... You see, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, all of our senses were damaged, except the sense of smell. You see, we saw the fruit, that's the eyes. We held the fruit, that's the sense of touch. We tasted the fruit, that's the sense of taste. We heard and listened to the snake, the nachash, that's hearing. So all of our senses on some level were corrupted, Except the sense of smell, which is why it's considered the most spiritual, one of the reasons why it's considered the most spiritual sense, because it was never damaged through our interaction from the, 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 uh, the snake. But, but it goes further than that. Because you see, the soul itself, the soul itself is a piece of Hashem, which is a piece of infinity. Which means the soul itself is above nature. Which means the soul itself is, if you had to pick a number in terms of Torah philosophy, which correlates with the soul, it would be the number eight. And you see how the sense of smell, the incense altar, correlates with that because it locks into the soul which is above nature. Binyamin, we said his portion included the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is also above nature, above time and space. How do we see that? Because it says that the ark that was held in the Holy of Holies took up no space. They, they make a certain calculation, certain measurements that were done with the size of the, the space of the Holy of Holies and the size of the ark. And when you do these calculations, you find that somehow the ark took up no space whatsoever. <laughs> Which means that that realm, that realm of the Holy of Holies was above time and space. I once asked someone, a rabbi, 
what that, what that means. And he said to me, it stuck in my head, he said, it means that the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the less... Boy, I'm trying to quote him exactly, but mid-sentence, I realize I can no longer do that. <laughs> I've run out of his words. <laughs> but basically what he was saying is, the less you're confined by time and space. So, um, you know, we can put that in a less sort of mystical way. Just that the more Kedusha that you have, the more Siyata De Shemaya, the more help from heaven you receive. That would be a very sort of logical way of phrasing that. But, um, but striking. Um, so, so there are more comparisons. There are more comparisons. Uh, Binyamin, Binyamin, very strikingly, is the only one who, of the tribes who doesn't bow down to Esav. They all bow down to Esav, except for Binyamin. Why? Because Binyamin is at that point in the stomach of, uh, of Rachel, Rachel, and she doesn't bow down, so he doesn't bow down. And it's interesting that that area, the Holy of Holies, which he correlates with, is that area that doesn't, doesn't bow down to Esav. Sort of beyond, beyond that even, you know? I remember, I remember uh, someone told me a story, a, an old, one of the sort of original Hasidim of uh, Reb Shlomo Karlach. And he told me that he, he picked him up one time, this was, I don't know, maybe in the 70s or something. He picked him up in a, in a Mercedes, in an old Mercedes. And I imagine it was an old Mercedes because, but anyway, it doesn't matter. But he picked him up in an old Mercedes and he all of a sudden became very self-conscious because, you know, some Jews are like definitely not into Mercedes Benz for obvious reasons. It's a German car, whatever it is. So, um, so all of a sudden he got like nervous and he said to Reb Shlomo, he, he told me this story himself, he said to Reb Shlomo, is it... Um, do, I'm sorry, do, do you mind that this is a Mercedes, you know? And he said back to him, I'm way beyond that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I tried that line once and it backfired on me. By the way, you should know. <laughs> I'll tell you the story. <laughs> Someone asked me to sign their, uh, their marriage contract. Actually, it... It was, I think, not actually the marriage contract. I think it was the Tanayim. I don't know. It was a pre-Ketubah. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it was. I guess it was the, it was the Tanayim. It was, it was something else. I don't know. I haven't really seen it so much. Anyway, this, this Chabad rabbi didn't know me at all. Uh, had never met me. Didn't know me. And, you know, the thing is, is that in order to sign the marriage contract, you have to be Shomer Shabbos. You have to keep Shabbos. And it, for real, because otherwise, anyway, there are reasons, but, but, but he really wanted to make sure that he's conducting a, a, a halachically valid wedding. And he doesn't, he's never met me. So he says to me, listen, and, and I've seen other rabbis do this and everything like this. It's actually very sweet and beautiful. They sort of take them aside and they say, listen, I'm not making any judgments. And I, this is just totally between us and everything like that, and it's, okay, just please tell me the truth. You, do you keep Shabbos? Do you keep Shabbos? 
you know? Um, and so he basically said that to me. And I, I don't know, I, was, I wasn't expecting the question. I wasn't expecting the question. And I was so uncomfortable that I just went to a humorous place, right? So I, I went, I said, I, I said, I'm way beyond that, brother. <laughs> right? And he wouldn't let me sign. <laughs> he was like, this guy's a joker. I don't, I don't even, this guy doesn't even understand my question. He doesn't even know what I'm talking about. Forget it. It's like, I just, <laughs> you know, I'm not doing business with this guy. So, anyway, what can you do? So, um, All right. Um, you know, I'll tell you, that, that reminds me of something else, which is, um, which is, you know, after you get married. Okay, when do you get married exactly? At what point officially are you married? So most people think uh, under the chuppah, you, you finish your chuppah business, right? And then you stamp on the glass, right? By the way, I want to just tell you something that my niece did. She's the first person who I saw do this. And I think it's a really beautiful idea, actually. And so I, I just want to mention it just to give you an idea for your own chuppah, which is, um, which is, which is, here's what is, is, is considered very standard today. You, you, you step on the glass and then everyone yells mazel tov, right? That's 99.9% of weddings, right? But what, why are you stepping on the glass? So everybody knows it's to commemorate the, the, the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Right. So. Um, so it's a little bit weird if you think about it. The base of Migdash is broken. Mazel tov. You know, it's OK. That's not really what's going on. But I mean, the, the proximity of those two things is if you think about it is a little bit off. So what, what she did was she had the band or whoever was there playing a beautiful, beautiful song. And they made an announcement that are going to smash the glass in the middle of the song and hold off on your mazel tov. And so what happened was they smashed the glass and there was a moment where it really resonated. Because normally speaking, except for the announcement that we're smashing the glass to commemorate the base of Migdash, which most weddings don't even say, by the way. Other than that, there's no recognition of, of what's going on, you know? So here for a moment, it actually kind of set in, you know? And then people said Mazel Tov at the, at the end. And it was actually very beautiful. I'll say one other thing, just, just giving wedding planning advice here. I, I didn't do this, but had I known that I could do it, I would have done it. So just to give you an idea again. You know, the, when, uh, you know something? There's a, there's a custom very strong custom that the woman buys the talus for the man. Right? Because the, the, the woman represents the, they say, they call it the orha makif, which means the surrounding light. And so the talus is very much correlates with the home itself, because the home is also the surrounding light. You know? So, so the woman gives the man a talus. And in fact, I even heard, I don't know if this works or not, but in some, in some circles, it's even considered a segula for a woman to buy a talus. You know, to, you know, so she has it to give to the man. I don't know. Anyway, I'm not recommending that necessarily, but just telling you. 
So, um, but anyway, the idea is this, that you can actually use that talus as for the chuppah. So that way, like, I know if, if I could have been married, like, if that, that my wife gave me that talus that I was married under, every time when I daven during the week, and I'm putting on the talus, I'm literally putting on my wedding chuppah. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. So I, I just mentioned that just to give you an idea. You know? But the, the story that I was going to tell you is that, is that according to some authorities, the, the wedding actually, you're actually married, not when you finish with the chuppah, but when you go into the yichud room. Because when you're publicly alone, when you're seen publicly, one-on-one, in, in yichud, behind closed doors, that's when the marriage kicks in. So that, that's an interesting thing. Most people don't realize that, you know. Again, that's according to one opinion, but that's a strong opinion. So what do you have to do? So everybody knows this. You send in people to make sure that they actually are alone, because they have to be alone. Because if they're not alone, that defeats the whole purpose of the halachic status of yichud, of them being alone together, right? So, so one of the honors is to appoint witnesses for the yichud door, right? They're, they're protecting the door that no one gets in. But those people have to go into the room to make sure that no one's hiding under the bed or in the closet. Not that they would, but you, you, you have to go through that process, right? So uh, a friend of mine made me and another guy his um, yichud room witnesses, right? And there, there was a prominent rabbi from Jerusalem who had been flown in to conduct a wedding. And my friend, uh, in his sense of humor, um, got a Sherlock Holmes outfit, right? With the, you know, uh, the, with the, that hat. And I think he even had the curved pipe, right? And a magnifying glass. And went in, the rabbi was standing there, went in to sort of like check out the room that no one was in there. And the rabbi looked at him and said, okay, you guys aren't the witnesses anymore. <laughs> you lost your job. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not sure what the moral of that story is, but these are wedding mishaps <laughs> from the files. Um, so, so, the idea, though, that I wanted to get back to, on a more serious note, is, is, is this idea that Benjamin didn't bow down before, before Esav. And that this is the, he correlates with the Holy of Holies. And that the Holy of Holies, so to speak, doesn't bow down to this world. That the Holy of Holies is beyond this world. It's, the, it's in this world, but it's the portal to the next world also. And by the way, on Yom Kippur, which is the day when everything is forgiven, and again, keep in, in mind Binyamin, who is one who doesn't have anything to be forgiven, so that's a beautiful correlation, who's correlating with the incense altar, you would bring in the incense into the Holy of Holies. Right? So again, which correlates with that aspect of our nose, which is that part which is uncorrupted from the Garden of Eden, which is that part which is of our neshama, which is beyond this world, right? So it all kind of comes together in an amazing way, I think. But just like the Holy of Holies, so to speak, doesn't bow down before this world, 
you have Binyamin not bowing down before Esav, and then who is Binyamin's, one of Binyamin's great descendants? Mordechai. And what is Mordechai famous for? Not bowing down to Haman. Right? And then what did Haman say? What was Haman's response to that? Okay, great. So what do I do? I'll kill you all. But we see that Binyamin on the deepest level is beyond death. So, okay. You know, so, so, so what are we to make of all this? I mean, you know, you see how structurally you have, everything is mentioned by the vessels in the base of Migdash and by the tribes in one parsha, except one is plucked from one and the other is plucked from the other, Binyamin and the incense altar. And they both occur exactly at the same stage in their various books, in the eighth parsha of their various books. And you see that there are tremendous overlaps between the two of them, that each are beyond beyond. So I'm trying to think, like, what is, what is, this, what is this telling me, right? Beyond just the fascinating correlations. What it says to me is that the Torah is amazing. <laughs> Because I never, I mean, I guess I did notice it, but I don't know how I noticed it exactly. <laughs> so I, I'm safe to say I never would have noticed it, that's for sure. I never would have noticed it, that's for sure. So if that's the case, how much stuff is going on in the Torah that we never will notice? In other words, how infinitely complex the weaving together of the various psukim the patterns of the letters, the patterns of the words. And we're never even going to see it. And we're looking straight at it. Over and over and over again. You know, I really have to make a a, a very strong recommendation, which is, you've got to keep on learning and keep on learning and keep on learning because, because there are things that I've read and it's just sort of like, you know, they make my brain hurt, and I, I can't understand it. And then for some reason, you know, I won't even think about it again. And then in a, a year later, I'll have the same question. And I'll go back and I'll read the same things, but this time I actually get it. And I wouldn't have gotten it unless I had hurt my brain the previous time. You know, it's almost like digging a field. You know, it's sort of like, if you kind of like smash the hard earth, right? Then the next time you go, already it's softened. And you're not thrown by the, the things that you were thrown by before. You got those out of the wet. And then you can actually dig and actually plant something meaningful. So, so you know, uh, okay, I want to move on now. I want to say something else. You know, I had a question a while back. And um, it, it went like this. If we say that uh, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, loved um, uh, Rachel more, or first at least, that seemed to be his primary wife, why is it that Mashiach doesn't come from that union? Because when we talk about Mashiach ben David, right, the the Right, that's the kingdom, the Malchus of David of Melech of King David, that goes back to Leah. 
Because Leah had Yehuda. So, David is a descendant of Yehuda. Yehuda was born to Leah. Wouldn't it make sense that the one he loved the most, or who he felt was his primary wife, that that, that that offspring would be the culmination, the great culmination of Mashiach? That, that was my question. And then, it, it came to me the following, which is, everyone should know that, you know, we all have a lot of children, whether you're married or not, whether you have any actual physical children or not. We all have a lot of children because the mitzvahs are called our children. And they really are our children. It's not like a joke. It's not like a metaphor. We actually produce great amounts of offspring. And that's a, that's a very real thing. And so, you see, how is it that Leah ever came to marry Yaakov to begin with? Because Rachel was afraid that her sister might become embarrassed. And so she sacrificed her own position. And as a great act of chesed, of kindness, of love, she gave over the, 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 the secret signs, basically, to Leah so that she could marry Yaakov. So that mitzvah produced what? That marriage, which produced Yehuda, which produced King David, which produces Mashiach. In other words, it is her child. It is her child. Because all of that offspring came from this child of hers, which was this great act of selfless love. Now, I heard something yesterday in the name of the Zohar that just amazed me. And it's funny because I heard, I, I heard it before years ago, but it was said in a way that I absolutely didn't understand it. And yesterday it was said to me so simply, I feel like I got it and I can maybe just give over just a taste of a taste of it, you know, just to the extent that I understood it. What was this whole relationship between Leah and Yaakov and, 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 and Rachel? How, how did that work exactly? Because everybody knows that Leah... Is, mar- is, is buried with Yaakov in Mor Samach Pela, right? The cave of the patriarchs where Adam and Eve are and Abraham and Sarah are and Isaac and Rebekah are and Jacob and you would expect Rachel. No, Leah is. And some say the head of Esau, which is always one of the great PSs in Torah. You know? <laughs> but, um, but anyway... What, what, what was their spiritual dynamic? What was going on in that relationship, basically? So listen to this. This is what I heard in the name of the Zohar. According to this, Leah was actually higher than Yaakov. Alright? Now that in itself is a far-out concept. Leah was higher than Yaakov. And... Leah needed Yaakov to ground her. Okay? Now, but who is going to ground Yaakov? You see? Because Yaakov didn't have anyone to ground him. So, Rachel was grounding Yaakov. And the friction in that relationship was because Yaakov had to learn how to be one who 
grounds someone, spiritually speaking, while being grounded by another person. And that that was a very, very tricky spiritual dynamic to master. How can I be simultaneously the one who spiritually grounds someone while being grounded by another? You know, someone um, once described uh, my wife and me. They said, you know, whenever I think of the two of you, I think of like, you're like this helium balloon and your wife is like holding on to the string, you know? So maybe that's why I could relate to this idea of like, you know, grounded and being grounded, you know? And um, anyway, there's more to that thought, but that, that's the part that I got, you know? Hopefully I gave it over in, 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 uh, accurately. But, but I know in life sometimes, you know, the great balances is, you know, like Rip Shlomo said, the hardest thing in the world is to have your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. Like, how do you maintain that, that balance? And that's the idea of grounding and, and being grounded, Right? So this is something that actually we have to master as well. And, you know, uh, just maybe this is not a related thought or maybe it is a related thought. One of the most interesting things about the way Yaakov Avinu is presented in the Torah, apart from anyone else, no one can compare, really, to, to the way Yaakov is presented in the following way. He is a husband. He is a father. He is a grandfather. He is a son. He is a grandson. He is an employee. Right? He's a, 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 a leader, a spiritual giant. All of these different... He's a brother. Right? He's, he's, he's presented in every mode. He's a father-in-law, right? The whole thing with Shechem. Or potentially a father-in-law. You know, there's, he's, every aspect of a person's real, you know, all the different um, grounding and, 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 and grounded, if, if you will, all the different aspects of human interaction, he's presented in, 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 all, of those, in all of those ways, as a military leader as well. So it's, 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 it's quite, as a diplomat, too. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff. That's, I think, why we're always going to Yaakov. Um, now, I want to add something, which is, you see this great act that, that uh, Rachel did for Leah, but less reported is the fact that Leah, in a big way, returned the favor. Okay. So what's that instance where Leah did something completely selfless for Rachel? What was that? And this is, this is far out, but, but here it is. By the way, I don't know at what point during the pregnancy this happened, but you should know, according to the Torah and even modern science, up until 40 days, you can pray for the gender of a child. Meaning to say that if you really want a boy or you really want a girl, whatever it is, 40 days, it's only at the 40th day that the gender of the child is determined. Now recently, by the way, within the last two decades, uh, 
the New York Times reported that they did a lot of um, experiments and all the rest, and they determined that the gender of a child is determined at the 42nd day. So we've been saying for thousands of years that it's the 40th day. And they asked a rabbi about this in the article, and he said, they'll, they'll, they'll catch up eventually. <laughs> They're getting closer. <laughs> you know, the, the truth is, is that science is still catching up with Torah, because... I don't know that this is the best way to phrase this, but there's a certain poetry to nature. And you know, 40, it's got to be 40. I mean, if you got it down to 42, isn't it clear that 40 is the answer? I mean, that's just me talking right now. But anyway, um, so, so I don't know how exactly, but, it, but, but at, a, at a moment that that there was one period where Rachel was pregnant and Leah was pregnant. And how, why, I don't know, it became clear to Leah that she was going to have a son. Now, this was Rachel's first child that she was about to have, who we know is Yosef, right? Leah is going to have Yosef. Okay? And she, at that point, already has four, or maybe, maybe more, is it? Let's see, two, four, six, maybe she has six? Does she have six sons? Yeah, yeah. So, this may be her fifth son, because I know she has Yisachar later. I think that this is going to be her fifth son. I'm not sure, I'm not positive, but... But she's going to have, at this point, it's, it's going to be like, it's coming out of uh, Rachel's pocket, so to speak. In other words, any additional children she's having at this point, sons, means that Rachel's basically going to have, you know, nothing almost, or one, or something like that. So she doesn't want her sister to be embarrassed. So she davens that this, for some reason, through Rachel Kodesh, or whatever it is, she knows she's going to have a boy, she davens that it should be a girl and that Rachel should have this boy. And sure enough, Rachel has Yosef. And that's reported, that's our tradition. So, so, so that's a beautiful thing. And who, you know, we have this concept of Mashiach ben David and Mashiach ben Yosef. And so she really returned the favor. She, and Mashiach ben Yosef comes first, you know. So she, she really returned the favor. So, and why? Because it says she didn't want her sister to be embarrassed. So with that in mind, I want to suggest something else. Which is now you see, and I'm not sure we have to think about this more, what, what actually meat and potatoes lesson we can draw from what I'm about to say. But someone else didn't want someone to get embarrassed and it completely backfired. So you're thinking, okay, this is so beautiful. We have like Leah, and she gets grounded, and she's in Mars Machpelah, and she's the mother of Mashiach, and that all came from Rachel. And then you have Rachel and Leah doing the same thing, and all of a sudden she has Yosef, who's like the mother of Mashiach and Yosef, and that's all working out great. And you know, Rachel was so happy to have this boy and all the rest, and everything's working out, right? And now you have another person who doesn't want someone to be embarrassed. 
Ruvain. Ruvain doesn't want his mother Leah to be embarrassed. But now let's tell the rest of this story and we see how it goes horribly awry. All right? What happens after Rachel dies? Yaakov Avinu makes his main um, tent, his main place where he dwells, the tent of Bila, who was the sister, or the handmaid, but the, the rabbis understand that, that it was actually her sister, the sister of Rachel, and Ruvain is like, now Ruvain, remember, Ruvain is the firstborn of all the tribes. Ruvain is like, this is horribly embarrassing to my mother. You know, like, it, he should, his, his primary place of dwelling should be my mother's tent. And he's going to that tent? How could it be? So, so what does he do? In order to save his mother from embarrassment, now remember, we've got a, a sterling record of people like the awesome things that come from saving people from embarrassment, right? In order to save my mother from embarrassment, I'm going to move my father's bed to, and this is, in the, this is the Gomorrah's understanding, because, by the way, this is one of the reasons why it's impossible to understand what's in the Chumash in the five books without knowing what the Talmud says. You need the Talmud to explain what the five books say. Because anyone who's reading the five books and thinks they know anything is in la-la land, you know? And it's, it's unfortunate that, that so many people misunderstand because, they're, they're, because they don't learn properly. Um, what it says actually in the Chumash is that, 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 that Ruvain had relations with Yaakov's wife. And that's not what happened at all. And you can look, it's in the Gomorrah and Shabbos. What he did was he moved the bed, but because Reuben was an exalted spiritual figure, anything tampering with like the bed of someone and all the rest, it's like, and you know, who's with who at that level? It's like, uh, that's it's charged against him. And it's written in a very searing, indicting way. But that's not actually what happened. Just, just so you know. But anyway... So he moves the bed to Leah's, to, Leah's, uh, to Leah's tent. Now, by the way, something very interesting, actually. When does Yaakov, Yaakov, who's outraged, he's outraged by this, outraged, when does he tell Ruvain how upset he is? The day Yaakov dies. He doesn't criticize him till the day he dies. And it's so interesting because I'll tell you, I heard from someone and I never forgot it. If you want to really let someone have it, think about it five times first and then don't say it. <laughs> you know? I mean, the self-control that he exercised, and it doesn't mean that you can never share a grievance with someone. There's a mitzvah, actually. If you can't work it through and you have a, a grudge, you, you have to talk it through. So let's, let's keep that teaching balanced. You know what I'm saying? But... At Yaakov's level, this is what he was able to do. Okay. So, why did it go astray with Reuven? Why didn't it work with Reuven? So, I'll leave that as a bit of an open question. You can kind of figure it out and think about it on your own if you like. But, 
Because here's the simple here's the simple answer, and it doesn't work for me. Here's what I would love to say, but it doesn't work. Because he was doing it on someone else's cheshven, as we say. He was doing it on someone else's account, right? But then if you say that, well, Leah, Rachel got Leah married to the wrong... I mean, why didn't, why didn't Yaakov say, hey, wait a second, you know, you're messing with Yaakov, he's married, he's worked seven years for this, and all of a sudden he gets someone else. I mean, it's hard to say that Ruvain you know, didn't have a precedent for what he did, right? And yet, somehow, and then you say, well, wait a second, that's dealing with, with uh, very intimate things. Well, you know, switching someone on a wedding night, that, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, parallel, isn't it? I mean, that's more parallel than a bed. That's the person who lies in the bed. You know, so, I mean, come on. So, why didn't it work for Ruvain? Why didn't it work for Ruvain? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He certainly was coming from the most beautiful, holy place, right? But, but it just, I don't know. We have to think about it some more. <laughs> For sure you know he did something wrong. But if you say he did something wrong, then, then didn't Rachel do something more wrong? And then that one worked out. Or maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I'll stop saying I don't know that. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, can I say one more thing? Yeah, okay. Okay. I just want to get this down. I, I, you know, one of one of my favorite, my 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 single favorite, not one of my favorite, my single favorite, uh, Shaila halachic question in the world was asked, uh, and I heard this from Dr. Ritchie, who heard it from Reb Shlomo, and I asked Dr. Ritchie who said it, and he. He thought maybe it's the Benish Chai, but he wasn't sure. I'd love, if anyone knows where this is written, I would love to see this. But anyway, here it is. Someone asked a, a very great rabbi, can you do Kfitzas Haderach? Kfitzas Haderach is like, kind of like a Kabbalistic thing, I don't know, like a very mystical thing where the road gets shortened so that you can travel, you, you begin a journey, and then you're transported literally to a faraway place in a very sh- short period of time, or in no time. So you're just there, okay? So um, in uh, Parshas um, Vayetze, uh Rashi actually points out that this, this idea of Kitzas Haderach, and it's right in the beginning of the Parsha, and it, he, it's this word, it says, Vayifka, and um, basically what happened was uh, Yaakov was through Kfitzah Sederach, through this mystical shortening of the road, he was transported to this faraway place which was actually the base of Migdash. And he sleeps there and then he has the dream of the ladder and he sees the angels going up and down. Okay. The Parsha actually ends with the same word. Vayif Gu'u. Slight variant of it. But now it's not talking about Yaakov 
going to the angels. What happens is, is that Yaakov is about to encounter the army of Esav, and he's getting an intelligence report from the angels about the number of men and, and all the rest. And, um, but you see the same word, which means the shortening of the road, the very end of the Parsha, but now it's the angels coming to Yaakov. And by the way, um, how did he know since they were in human form, how did he, how did he know that they were angels? So the Orach HaChaim says something cool, which is that, you know, normally speaking, if a, if a camp is traveling towards you, you can see them approaching. What happened was, it was, it just was like, he just like, there was just like a snap, and there was like an encampment in front of him. So we understood that they were angels, because they just, boom, they were there. Okay? So I'm thinking, oh, isn't this interesting? Because what I always wondered about this idea, oh, I didn't, did I say the, I didn't say the, 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 the Shiloh, the, the, the Shiloh, which is, can you do Kfitza Sederach on Shabbos? Why? Because one of the laws of Shabbos is, is that you have something called Tchum Shabbos, which means you can't go 2,000 Amos, an Amah is like a meter, but you can't go 2,000 Amos out of your city. So, if you are doing Kfitza Saderach, you're traveling a great distance, but you're not really traveling a great distance, because you're just taking a few steps. So, is that, are you halachically violating Shabbos or not? Because you're not really traveling, but you are traveling. Not really leaving the city, but for sure you're outside the city. So, is it permitted or not? So, this great Rav said, you know, he says... Is it permitted on Shabbos? Well, there are two forms of Kfitza Saderach. And I was like, I never got past that. I've been thinking about that for more than 20 years, I promise you. I was like, man, I'm still on one form of Kfitza Saderach. You're telling me there are two forms of Kfitza Saderach? I mean, really, I, honestly, I promise you, I've not stopped thinking about that since I heard it. And, and, and he says, one where you go to the city, one where the city comes to you. He says, the first form, I don't think you can do on Shabbos, where you go to the city. He says, but where the city comes to you, that I think you can do on Shabbos. Hmm. So then, when I was learning this, and this is an example of what I was talking about a, a few minutes ago, I, I saw, like a, like a year or two ago, or whatever it is, yeah, Vayifka, and it's Pizza Sederach, and Vayifka, ooh, and it's the same word, but it's, eh, my brain is hurting, I can't do any more of this, right? And then, but this year I came back to it, and it was, it was just like, like all the, the earth had already been tilled. And I looked at it, and it was like, oh wow, it's really straightforward. Here, you're going to the angels, there, the angels are coming to you, the Yivka is the same word, which means Kfitza Saderach, one you go to one place, the other, the other one comes to you. And then I thought, that's the thing! That's the thing that the Rav was saying. There are two forms. One, in this way, he said, where he, in his brilliance, he said where the city comes to you, because he applied it in a practical way, in terms of the laws of Shabbos. That was his genius. But I thought to myself, maybe this is the source of it, where you get the idea of two forms of Kvitsa Saderich. Right? So... 
Well, that's the end of that thought. So, <laughs> all right. Have a good week. <laughs> yes, sir. I was realizing that uh, one of the qualities of rebuke is making sure that you have no personal agenda yeah. before you give somebody criticism. And Reuven had personal agenda because Leah was his mother. It was an affront to him personally as her son. Whereas I think Rachel didn't have such personal... There was no mitigating circumstances. You know, I, I kind of flashed on that and it went right out of my head immediately. Uh-huh. But I, I think there's something to that. I really do. I really do. I really do. And, and I'll tell you, I think that that's... Just to... To, to apply that in terms of uh, our, our own interpersonal relationship. Sometimes people will say, well, look, you're, you're not keeping X or you're not keeping Y, right? We talked about this regarding Pinchas because the greatness of Pinchas is that he avenged God completely not out of anger. In other words, a lot of times his greatness was that it wasn't a personal insult to him. So often, people will rebuke another person because I'm keeping X, so why aren't you keeping X? In other words, it's not really coming from a a purely spiritual place. It's the point that somehow my honor is offended because you're not you're not doing what I do, and that that doesn't live. That doesn't have resonance. If you love the person and you care about the person. Right? And it's coming from that place. Then, yeah, then it will take root. But if it's just sort of like, you know what? You are contradicting my lifestyle. Then it's like, alright, so mazel tov, I'm contradicting your lifestyle, you know? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate within the person. You know? So I think, um, I, I think that that's probably a big element of it. I do, I do. But, um, but then again, you have to say, Ruben was a beautiful guy, you know what I mean? So, you know, he was, such, he was such on a high level. So maybe it was just a little taste of that, possibly. You know, but, but yeah, I think that's a very, very interesting point. I really do. Okay, yeah, okay. I was going to say that um, this week, Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman was oh, yeah. that the leader of Mashiach was to feel someone else's pain with empathy. And I thought that's perfect for what you were saying, that he came from Leah, which came from yes. Russell's feeling of yes. someone Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't know why this popped into my head, but, but um, probably those who liked President Clinton, anyway, when he was running for president, his big line was, I feel your pain. You know, that was the thing that was sort of, in, in my experience anyway, the most widely quoted thing about how beautiful a guy he was, those who, those who liked him and appreciated him, you know? And it, just feeling someone else's pain. And when he said it, people believed him, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's something redemptive about that, about feeling someone's pain and, and taking action toward it. Um, I'll tell you sort of uh, an opposite story that I heard. It's, it's, it's the same story, but... But I, I was sort of struck by this. You know, it's kind of a bit of a rebuke. But, and I, I don't remember in whose name it was, but this particular rabbi, you know, didn't like when people 
heard sad news and went, Ay! And let me, let me explain it for a second because he's making a very specific point here. He said, because sometimes you share some sad news about someone and then someone will go, Ay! And then they'll feel as though they've now, they're now putter, meaning they've now done everything they need to do. <laughs> they no longer are obligated to help the person because they said, Ay! And now, okay, they can go on with their life. Okay, so does that mean a person shouldn't say, I, they shouldn't be hurt by sad news if they heard it? It doesn't mean that they shouldn't say it. But we should have in the back of our mind that our obligation toward helping that person to the extent that we can hasn't, hasn't been fulfilled just because we took one moment to share their pain, right? But, but again, not, that, I'm not saying anything that you didn't say. Feeling someone's pain and doing something about it is, is, the, is the highest and is, is totally redemptive. But then the action that follows from it is, is, is also necessary. You know? Okay, have a great week.